Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Cicero with my colleague here at King's, Rafael Wolf. Hi, Rafael. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming back Pleasure. on the podcast. Uh, well, we're going to be talking about Cicero, as I just said, and he has always been of interest to historians of philosophy, but I guess more usually because of what he tells us about other philosophers. Yes. But you're actually writing a book about Cicero, so I suppose you must think that he's worth studying in his own right. Why do you think that? Well, I, I do think that, and hopefully it'll be a more interesting book <laughs> as a result. I think I'm not alone in thinking that. I think I'd like to say a little bit maybe about how one sort of gets to this stage of thinking of Cicero as a as a philosophical author who's worth reading in his own right. I mean, he's he is he's unquestionably a very very important source for earlier Greek philosophical thinking, particularly of the Hellenistic age, and partly because of the accident of history that we don't have we have virtually nothing that the founders of Stoicism and even Epicurus wrote themselves. So the fact that Cicero took himself to be transmitting this material um, for a Roman audience, and we might come back to sort of that aspect later, but that has given that has made him probably an even more important figure for the history of philosophy than he himself might have recognized. So in a, in a way, it's no surprise that scholars have spent a lot of time, as it were, looking at Cicero and using Cicero for the purpose of finding out what previous important thinkers thought. But I think we've we've now come to the stage where um, it's almost, and I think this is a good thing, almost sort of disreputable to simply regard Cicero as just a, 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 a useful source for other thinkers, though he undoubtedly is that. I think more and more scholars are recognising that the way he writes, the way he constructs his philosophical works, indicates that there's much more going on than the sort of simple transmission of other people's ideas. So I, I think I'm trying to sort of just take that, take that idea forward a little bit. Is one reason why he's now thought to be more interesting that he's himself coming out of a certain tradition within Hellenistic philosophy, namely the sceptical tradition? Yes, I, 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 I think so. And I think that's certainly one, one aspect of it. Um, and the sort of particular brand of sceptic... I mean, it, I think one of the interesting questions about Cicero is it's actually quite hard, and this is sort of one of the things I, I, I want to sort of claim about him, that it's actually quite hard to pin him down. I think that in some ways, and I'll try not to talk about Plato too much in this particular, <laughs> tempted as I always am, but... Um, in some ways, you can look at him a little bit like one might look at Plato, as somebody who's actually quite elusive. There's a sort of um, rather kind of, I think, naive reading of Cicero, where, for example, if you look at some of the things he has to say about the Epicureans, um, it looks like straightforward, he thinks they're rubbish, to not to put too too fine a point on it. Um, and I think there's much more going on than that. I think he actually doesn't want to tell us what to think about the philosophers that he discusses. And I think the scepticism is one feature of that. So I think I'll say for present purposes, and I don't think it's too inaccurate, that he did, if he, if he 
sort of nailed his colours to any mast. It was the mast of what's known as academic scepticism, which, unlike the other kind of scepticism, Peronian scepticism, Peronian scepticism, again, I won't go on too much about the different types, but Peronian scepticism basically kind of says anything you can say in favour of position, you can say an equal amount against, and what we do is suspend judgment, and basically we (laughs) ultimately don't take any notice of these philosophical theories. Um, the academic scepticism is much more interesting, I think, in this in this regard. It it certainly doesn't think you can have certain knowledge. So every position that either you or anybody else might uphold is fallible, subject to revision and correction. But on the other hand, academic skeptics do think that certain positions are more plausible probable than other positions and what that means in in sort of Cicero's context when he's talking about previous thinkers is that he can do things he doesn't have to dismiss them and say well you know there's there's nothing more we can say for than against so forget about even trying to engage with these guys ultimately he can say he can make assessments he can make critical judgments he can compare one philosophical school with another and and actually he can express a view about one versus another. But I think he that also means the fallibility of scepticism also allows him to, as it were, leave it to the reader to make their judgments, because all judgments are fallible. He actually says yeah. sometimes that it's very mm-hmm. important to reflect for yourself on the validity of philosophical arguments rather than just following a school because it's the school to which you adhere. Absolutely. So what you're suggesting is that it's not merely that he did that himself, but that he's trying to make it possible for you to do that by writing his works in such a way as to present the views before you. Exactly. And I think that one of the ways he does this is by writing sometimes in, for example, dialogue form. So he has, I mean, we're maybe going to talk a bit more about one specific work later, the, the ethical work called On Ends, um, De Finibus. And that's written as kind of a series of dialogues that, that um, an Epicurean spokesman makes the case for Epicureanism. Cicero then gives a critical response. Then the same happens for Stoicism and the, then the same happens for the theory of Antiochus, which is a slightly more obscure <laughs> Uh, theory, but it's the same pattern that a spokesman for Antiochus's philosophy makes the case for it, and then Cicero makes the case against. And I think it's sort of crucial that we're not just supposed to think, well, and it's actually very, when you think about it, it's actually very hard to just think, well, there's some determinate thing that Cicero wants us to take away from that. It's not that he ends up saying, well, Stoicism is the right philosophy, or Epicureanism is. He says, basically, they've all got something to be said for them. I think it's important to realise that. They, they, he does, maybe I'll just, if I could just give a little quote, perhaps, because mm. this is, I mean, because we've been talking a lot about what I think Cicero is up to. Um, it's worth saying that Cicero himself gives us some fairly good indications what what he is up to. So here's here's a little quote from the prologue of On Ends, and this is what he says about what he thinks he's doing. And this is a yeah. translation you endorse, presumably. This is a translation, is I, translation. I, I, yes, it, it is. So, um, of course, being a skeptic myself, I, I endorse nothing, even my own <laughs> translation. But um, um, for present purposes, here's what he says. If he'd written in English, he'd have said the following. This is, this is 
part of my translation of the prologue of On Ends. And he says, he says, what of it if I do not perform the task of a translator, but preserve the views of those whom I consider sound while contributing my own judgment and order of composition? Now, that I think that means we have to take very seriously the idea that Cicero isn't simply blandly presenting predecessors' views and leaving it at that. If you think about how much scope the idea of contributing one's own judgment and indeed one's own structure, he talks about order of composition, then I think you're going you're gonna to owe Cicero the idea that there's a much more sort of critical and complex engagement with his predecessors going on than, than a simple transmission of... Well, let's talk a little yeah. bit more about this work on mm. ends. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you could say a little bit more first about what is it about? So you've said it's an ethical work, what, but it's called on ends. It's called on ends, so yes. Well, the ends in, in, in question are basically the goals that one should pursue in order to live a good life. So it's concerned with, to use a sort of slightly less obscure phrase than an end, it's concerned with with the highest human good or goods. So basically the sort of fundamental goods that a good life is constituted from. And there are a series of different positions. So the Epicureans think that pleasure is the highest good and therefore that's what should be one's end and what the good life consists in. The Stoics think it's virtue. Um, Antiochus, again, a bit more difficult to pin down, but seems to think it's sort of virtue, but a bit of a mix of other more sort of worldly goods, if you like, as well. Uh, So that's the basic structure of the work. It's a discussion of the different views about the highest human good that different philosophical schools uh, propounded. And it does come out in this that he has a lot less time for the Epicureans. I mean, there's a parallel, actually. So in On the Nature of the Gods, Cicero presents the Stoic view, he presents the Epicurean view, and he has a skeptical mouthpiece criticized both. And it's very clear that the Stoic view is thought to be more sophisticated and interesting than the Epicurean view. Yes. And the same sort of thing happens here, I, doesn't it? I, I think I think probably ultimately, again, he as a skeptic, he's allowed to make comparative judgments. He's allowed to think that one theory is more plausible than another. And I think it would be sort of taking things a bit too far for me to suggest that, you know, if you'd ask Cicero, you know, Stoicism or Epicureanism, you know, give me a one word answer. I think it would be Stoicism. And I think he's not ultimately a great fan of Epicureanism. But I think in, I think it's more complex than that, both, both because, you know, if you remember what he says in the prologue, he says, and I think this sometimes, you know, people don't quite take proper account of this. He says, I'm going to put before you the views of those I consider sound. Now, that's actually, an ex- it, it, it sounds fairly bland, but when you think about it, it's actually not entirely straightforward to then square that with the idea that he that he's going to talk about a view he just considers rubbish. I mean, he could have said something like, and I think this is also something he believes that it, oh, it's terribly influen- influential and pernicious. And many Romans, including his best friend Atticus, were Epicurean, so he has a kind of there's a kind of personal issue at stake for him. But he doesn't say that. He says views I consider sound. And I think if one starts looking maybe at some of the detail of what he says. It's not clear that 
the epic that epicureanism is 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 just getting straightforwardly lambasted um and i think that the other point to make is sort of again regardless of cicero's own view i think it's terribly important that again the sort of the way he structures on ends and some of the other works in a, in a particular kind of complex way for him the most important thing is not what he thinks and he's not trying to get us to think anything in particular he's trying to present the views in a way that will make us as it were be good skeptics and engage with these views and think them through for ourselves and i think that's probably what's happening with epicureanism i guess this goes together with something you've already mentioned which is that it's written as a dialogue yes and you said that you think that's important yes what effect does it have on on ends that it is written as a dialogue well i think um it, I suppose first thing to say, it, it, it's not it's not quite the sort of cut and thrust of a Socratic dialogue. It's not sort of question and answer back and forth. It's more like a sort of exchange of speeches. Um, nonetheless, I think it does make it harder for us to say that um, either the view that's being propounded or the view that's being criticised is, you know, what we're supposed to take away and think is think is true and there's actually a more the complexity goes beyond the fact that they're dialogues I mean firstly of course it's a series of dialogues secondly remember this guy Cicero who's written this prologue right I don't want to go on too much of the problem I think the, the prologue is a really interesting indication of, of 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 the complexity of the way he's he's writing so there's a prologue and then there are three separate dialogues within that, as we've already said. And the dialogues are all set at times earlier than the prologue. And they're all set at times different from one another. Now, I think if you think about what that means, first thing it means is that one's not necessarily... So when, when, when Cicero, the guy taking part in the dialogue, as it were, within the, within the work, is saying nasty things about, if indeed that's what he's doing, but let's say he's saying nasty things about Epicureanism, certainly doesn't follow automatically from that, that the guy who's writing at a different time, the prologue, will have identical views. Why should he? He's a sceptic. He's always inquiring. It's, not, right? it's similarly not clear that the Cicero who pops up to critique the Epicureans will have exactly the same outlook as the Cicero who pops up to critique the Stoics or Antiochus because it's a different time. So in all these ways, I think, he's encouraging us not to think there's something there that we're supposed to just read off. And that's another difference from Plato because, I mean, it's not just the fact that the speeches are longer in Cicero's dialogues, but Plato famously never makes himself a character in his dialogues, whereas Cicero does. Yeah, yes, he does, and I think—I mean, I think it would be probably um, too um, uh, uh, too kind of me to deny that that there's a bit of ego there. Um, I mean, I think Cicero is anxious among other things, and I—but I mean, I think this is another reason to take him very seriously, to sort of promote himself as somebody who's doing something important here. So I think that's kind of one reason. And yes, indeed, certainly in in, in on ends. He is the respondent in every case, and he's kind of, you know, you can't get away from his presence. That having been said, I think he was famous and he knew he was famous. And I think, the f- ironically, actually, that, that kind of 
helps because he's you know he's a skeptic he's as much as one can pin him down he's a sort of self-proclaimed skeptic and i think in that sense the fact that you actually have someone identified as a skeptical figure is is helpful because it gives a certain signal to the reader about the right approach to to reading these dialogues i mean plato is is in a way harder because you can't even say although it's very tempting that you can't even exactly say well, Plato wants us to take a sceptical attitude. He's not, he's not there, and we don't know. And, of course, that has its own interest and from an interpretive point of view. But, but I think Cicero is, is there, and he's there as a, as a sceptical presence, and he's there to tell us that that's how we should approach this. Do you think that there's anything in <laughs> On Ends that we could say is actually original with Cicero? So, presumably, since he's a sceptic, not original ethical theories, but... For example, original criticisms of Epicureanism or Stoicism. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would say so. And I mean, I think firstly, he's just, you know, he's a very intelligent guy, and I think, as a matter of fact, a lot of what he has to say in in, in critique uh, can't necessarily be tracked down to other sources, and is actually very, you know, worthwhile reading in its own right. But I think there are so certainly yes. I think I think although I neither I think I nor he would want to claim he's an original thinker uh, in the way that the um, philosophers he's discussing are. Um, I think there's I think he's well worth reading just if you want to see intelligently aimed and I think in a number of cases um, you know, non-derivative criticism of philosophers. But I think there there are some very specific. Ciceronian angles that that actually are, are are particularly sort of characteristic of him. And I think one one we might want to talk about is the fact that he's writing as a Roman, and again, going back to the prologue, which I think is you know kind of terribly important uh, to assess what's happening in a work like On Ends. The thing he's the thing he kind of obsesses about in the prologue is whether, and he tries to defend the idea, that trying to do Greek philosophy in Latin is a worthwhile task. So he's setting before us this, and of course, again, I think on one level, it's a very straightforward defence that he feels he needs to run, because there are clearly Romans, perhaps somewhat ironically, who think that, that, that as it were... Latin isn't really a very appropriate language for the sort of subtleties of Greek philosophy. And Cicero is very keen to say, you're wrong. It's a, it's a, at some points, I think, a little hyperbolically, he says Latin is better for writing philosophy than Greek. So don't, you know, don't give me this stuff about the Greeks. Well, but on the other hand, um, I think the fact that he's obsessing about this is it gives us some kind of indication that he thinks in various ways it's important that he's a Roman engaging with greek philosophy and that and that some of the ways in which he goes about critiquing the epicureans and the stoics is very much from the perspective of a roman i think there are probably some quite interesting things to is part of that because he thinks that Mm -hmm. for example the epicurean ethical (laughs) theory would make it very hard to uphold traditional roman values of integrity and bravery Mm -hmm. and political engagement Mm -hmm. and so on very 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 much so and um it's 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 very noteworthy that a lot of 
I mean, throughout the work, but perhaps particularly pointedly with the Epicureans, a lot of the strategy is to say, look, Epicureanism simply doesn't fit. I mean, this is, this is what a surface reading would tell you. I think there's probably some more to be said, but sort of at first glance, um, it looks like a lot of the critique of Epicureanism consists in rolling out various, to use the, 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 the Latin phrase, exemplar, various sort of, you know, uh, examples of uh, uh, great Roman figures and the values they, up, they upheld. And to say to Torquatus, who's this Epicure, who's actually, you know, scion of a very noble Roman family, but he's an Epicurean, and to say to Torquatus, look, your ancestors couldn't possibly have done what they did within a system of Epicurean values. Now, you might want to say, oh, well, that's just Cicero being a sort of blustering Roman. And again, there's probably a grain of truth in that. But I think, I think in, in a number of ways it's more interesting than that. I mean, firstly, just think about Cicero's background. Cicero was not a traditional patrician Roman. He's, what, he's what's known as a novus homo, a new man, somebody who didn't, who basically reached the top of the political tree without belonging to one of the great traditional Roman families. He's not a military man. He's a great admirer of Greek culture. Now, and again, he knows that the reader knows this, apart from the fact that he often talks about it explicitly himself anyway, which immediately suggests he's perhaps not going to be a straightforward upholder of Roman values, that there are going to be more interesting things to be said than that. Um, and I think, I mean, just sort of for starters, you might ask, well, why exactly is it a critique of a philosophical theory to say it doesn't fit in with my values? I mean, why not say so much the worse for my values? You might think that's a very, actually a very odd way of assessing... In fact, that was sort of the position. Epicurean's point, wasn't it? That well, people might have the wrong values. Ex- exactly. And, and I think all the ancient schools were to some extent determinedly being radically revisionary and saying you're you know now then the question is 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 Cicero just sort of obtuse to that idea or is he in a rather subtle way making a little bit more of it and I think I mean one and I think (laughs) there are lots of things to say about that I think one thing to say is that there's a fast again just to give a a tiny little quote because I think this is this is really quite important when you're thinking about how Cicero thinks about the relationship between Roman values and the Greek ethical systems that he's that he's discussing. Um, he's talking about again the Epicureans. This is from Book Two of of On Ends, and he says, and he's he's again on the surface being rather critical of the Epicurean um, habit of which was actually we might think one of the rather enlightened things about Epicureanism. Uh, they praise women and sort of as it were female virtues and um, Cicero gets seems to get into a bit of a huff about this and says let us leave that to the Greeks I'm now quoting again from my translation we are indebted to them for philosophy he says interestingly enough and for all higher and for all higher learning but there are things that they may do which we should not now okay there's now again one way to read that is to say Romans write Greek theories which are inconsistent with Roman values wrong. That's not what he says. He actually says the Greeks can do things which we 
may not. He's not saying he's not saying we're objectively right and those guys are objectively wrong. He's just said you know we owe them sort of. That. So again, it's 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 a much more nuanced statement. And I think sort of as it were, the upshot of all this is that there's a there's actually a serious ethical point about whether ethical theories should be universal or whether the idea that a sort of successful ethics has to grow out of things like local traditions and local cultures and local values is actually the only realistic way of doing ethics. Now that would still mean that there's a in a certain sense a critique of Epicureanism, but it's a much more it's a much more subtle one. It's a critique that says, look, maybe it's fine for a different kind of society, but it's not okay for us. Not because it's objectively better or worse, but because, you know, there are things we may do that other guys may not, because we have our own traditions and backgrounds and values. Um, and it's a more interesting kind of critique than one might think just a blustering Roman who thinks Romans are right. I mean, he clearly doesn't think that Romans are right about everything. Um, it's more interesting than that. It's particularly mm. interesting, I think, mm. because in the Pyronian skeptical tradition, one mm. of the mm. tropes that they use for undermining mm. ethical theories is to say, well, in other cultures they do it differently. So they'll say, oh, well, there are cultures where people have sex in public. Yes. And we wouldn't do that. Right. Which yes. should get you to suspend judgment right. about yes. whether it's okay to have mm. sex in public. Mm. Mm. But it sounds like you're implying that his academic skepticism inspired by Philo of Larissa mm. would be more along the lines of saying, well, for us, Ab since we're in our culture, we shouldn't have sex in it's public. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I think that's absolutely right, Peter. And, and I think you know, it's the difference between indeed saying both, you know, both theories are wrong or both theories shouldn't be taken seriously because they're different and saying both theories are right because that's what a good ethical theory does. It's something that has to grow out of local traditions and values. Um, Would it be both yeah. theories are right, though, or is it more like both well, theories are acceptable for the people who I find think, them yes, plausible? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I was, I was going to say that I think, as it were, the, 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 the methodology of scepticism actually fits that view of the relation of ethical theories to particular cultures very well. And yes, I, I suppose one should never quite use the word right. <laughs> Even about an academic sceptic, plausible... And part of that plausibility, part of what determines what's plausible for you is, of course, going to be your background beliefs and values. And that just seems to be a kind of sensible way to think about how ethics actually works in the real world. And Cicero is concerned, if nothing else, with the, the real world. He's a, certainly a Roman in that, in that regard. Well, next time I'm going to actually be moving on to the next great skeptic, namely the ultimate Pyronian Sextus Empiricus, and you would certainly be right to join me for that. But for now, I'll thank Rayful Wolf very much for joining me. Thank you, Peter. And I hope you will join me for Sextus Empiricus next time on The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Mm -hmm.